You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. This is 4S. I'm David Johnson. And we are already underway. We are with Reverend Pastor, Holy Father, Priest, somebody. It does not give a name. He doesn't pop it up on the screen. He never says it in the video that I hear. Uh, if he if he does, that's I, I just missed it. So I don't know who this is, and I don't know the name of the church. Our Lady of the Something Something Plymouth. Our Lady of the GC. Plymouth. Um, once again, it doesn't say uh, where this is from or who it is. There is no link to his church that I saw on YouTube. He has comments turned off, and so there's no one to say, hey, Pastor Stan, great sermon. So I really don't know. I'm not trying to disrespect him. Uh, in fact, I am paying him honor by featuring him this week. Uh, he is speaking to a small group's uh, that he does on the subject of discipleship. This talk that he gives is about 13 minutes long. It's very short. This podcast is going to last longer than 13 minutes. We've met, right? Discipleship is kind of on my mind. It is uh, the place where I am. I'm still in chapter one, but I'm uh, on the subject of discipleship over on Red Letters. Uh, if you have not yet gotten your copy, Red Letters, the worst, uh, I'm sorry, Red Letters, a closer look at the worst practical and moral teachings in history. That is my latest book. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it uh, right here on the site, skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. You can just click on the Red Letters tab and pick it up there. I would much rather you get it for free. Yes, I would like to give it to you for free. You can go to patreon.com slash red letters when you sign up for $1 per podcast. I do a member podcast every week. And in fact, I usually do two to three podcasts a week. It's been averaging two per week so far, but I only charge for one. So You'd never pay more than $5 if you got all of the ones that I did and the others. Although they're members-only podcasts, uh, you don't get charged. So um, very good um, good place, good comments. Uh, the community is starting to grow there. If you are not familiar with it, uh, please check it out. Or if you are familiar with my work or you like what you hear here on 4S and would like to get more of the same but different go check it out patreon.com slash red letters uh just a side note before we get back to the good nameless priest why do catholic churches name their churches our lady of the something what is that all about i mean i catholicism is not my tradition and so this may be a really easy one for those who have more of a, a Catholic tradition. I do not. It always uh, sounded very creepy to me. Uh, it still does. And so if someone would provide the background to that for me, I would really appreciate that. Uh, just log into your discuss account and uh, discuss away underneath uh, this podcast or red letter. I'm sorry, skepticsandseekers.com slash Squarespace. Um, we're going we're gonna to cut in from time to time on this sermon. You're going to hear the entire 13 minutes, uh, and we're going to go ahead and get back to him. But I'll, I'll jump in again with a few observations. Here we go. So we're continuing our look at uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Last week we looked at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and uh, Jesus' teaching of the Beatitudes, which we said was something like an MRI of his interior life, and we kind of highlight the reality that um, we're all supposed to have each of these Beatitudes, so they're not like charisms or gifts of the Spirit. 
where you know like some people have one thing and other people have another thing I'm supposed to have all of them today we're continuing with this uh, Sermon on the Mount and we're gonna look at just two verses so it's Matthew 5 verses 13 and 14 and what I just read is Matthew 5 13 I mentioned last week I think there's a really an extraordinary little commentary in the Gospel of Matthew called the fire of mercy, heart of the word, and rather than try to memorize uh, what it is that um, Mary Caucus writes, I thought I'd just share this with us because I think it's an extraordinary reflection on what Jesus is trying to say to us with regards to uh, this passage. So it's more literally, um, but if salt becomes insipid. So here's what Mary Caucus writes. Christians are not only to be virtuous, they are to be salt. That is, they are to raise the level of flavor of every human activity and thus transform it. One of the challenges for many of us, I think, as we kind of begin the life of discipleship is we can um, almost mistakenly think that the goal of everything is just to become holy as if holiness means, you know, personal piety, freedom from sin, those kinds of things. All very important to be sure. But the Lord doesn't call us to himself so that we'll just go retreat into a cave and, you know, live immune from the world or untouched by the world. He calls us to himself, penetrates our lives, and then sends us into a decaying world so that we would, by our presence and his grace at work within us, by the power of the gospel, make the decaying world actually come back to life, preserve those things that are in danger of being lost. Okay, here are a couple of things to uh, highlight First of all, there's uh, let me let me just talk about mission a little bit. I am not a big fan of mission as Christians understand it because their understanding is that God has called them very specifically for a mission. All Christians are missionaries, which is to say their people own a mission. Now, what kinds of missions are there? So we we could consider four types of missions. And whenever we look at a sermon on discipleship, it's focusing on at least one of those types. So let me let me go over the four types of uh, missions that I can identify, you might can identify more. One type of mission is to spread the good news of the gospel to other people and multiply the church. Let me just add a note of color to this. Uh, In my experience, and you might have a different experience or know of different experiences, so uh, my experience is not all experience, but in my experience, when people do this type of mission, when churches engage in this type of mission, they are not generally engaging in the mission of growing the church generically speaking they're not just going to you know some some place in africa to make more small c christians they are going to this place to plant more of their denominational franchises that's that's what they're doing this uh this type of mission work is to grow the denomination in particular. Now, the exception to that would be ecumenical ministries, and there are uh, ecumenical ministries. Ecumenical just means uh, inclusive of everyone. Ecumenical uh, ministries that that support mission works that, quote-unquote, grow the church generically. But what you have to understand about those ministries is even they have um, cooperating denominations that they work with. So they don't work with all denominations that call themselves uh, Christians, they still have a, a kind of a, a group. So when a, when a Catholic sends people into the mission field, they're not then telling their converts to go over there to the Baptist church that the other missionaries built. And uh, by the same token, when Baptist goes into a mission field, they're not telling their converts to go over there to the big Catholic church that's been there for 100 years. Uh, no, they're they're building franchises for their own selves. So it, it it's a kind of a self-serving thing. It's an, it's an ugly thing once you get inside of 
of um, the missionary uh, lifestyle uh, and and what it's really all about. I mean, it's it looks good on paper, but <clears throat> in reality, n- not so much. So that's that's one kind of um, mission. I would also say about that kind of mission, it is patently obvious that not everyone is good at it. Not everyone. Uh, can do it. Not everyone should try to do it. And so uh, when I say everybody's a missionary, I don't mean everybody is a church planter for their denomination in uh, far-flung parts of the world. So what other kinds of mission fields are there? Well, there is the mission to do good to all people. So it's uh, generically speaking, it's the, the mission of being um, a person who engages in good works, good works becomes the, the mission of the Christian. And I think this is the most common type of mission. When we think of missionaries, we think of the people who go to other places and, and do church planting. But when we talk about the mission of Christians, what we're really thinking about is doing good works, opening a soup kitchen or you know, grabbing a ladle and uh, scooping up some soup and giving it to a homeless person or uh, giving a homeless person a dollar as you pass by. Uh, by the way, I don't consider that a good deed. <laughs> we'll talk about it over on Red Letters at some point, but um, I don't I don't actually consider that a good deed, but it's it's the ministry of good deeds. So that's um, that's mission number two. Another idea of the mission is what he uh, described just a moment ago and is saying is not what he's talking about, which is the mission of being a holy, pious individual. So what has God called you to do? Well, he calls you to be holy, pious. Uh, And if you uh, listen to what you know, other disciples had to say about it. Supposedly, disciples had to say about it in uh, other parts of the New Testament. Uh, you are to be set apart from the world, called out, separate, apart from the world. But he just said, well, no, you're not actually supposed to be separate from the world. This can be a little confusing. Um, it's okay. It's it, This is not a terribly important point, but... Um, the point is, this is considered one of the primary duties, uh, functions of Christians to reflect Jesus in a holy life of righteousness and sacrifice. And then the fourth kind of mission is very similar to that, but it's it's what I would call outward piety. It's to allow yourself to be a billboard for Jesus um, not just in your private Christianity, your private holiness, but your public holiness. It's, it's when you put on the cross, sorry about the bumping there. When you put on the cross and you wear it about town, it's when you pray in a restaurant where you can be seen by other people it's when you put on the bumper sticker that says honk if you love Jesus. It's the it's the public piety that reminds uh, people that Jesus is a going concern. Uh, you're you're a walking billboard. In fact, uh, in um, looking for this particular sermon, uh, I came across one where they described uh, Christians as a walking sandwich board. Now, this is a Christian who's, who's saying this. You're, you're a sandwich board for Jesus. Um, so it's all about the public piety um, that, uh, that holds Jesus up in front of other people in the world. So that's the mission uh, that we're going to get to toward the end of this sermon. He's, he's not talking about this, this private holiness, and he's not really talking about going out into all of the world and preaching the gospel to all the people. And he's, even though it's kind of hinted at, he's not even really talking about the good deeds kind of thing. So I just wanted to give a little bit of color on that.
Now, he also places a strong emphasis on the idea of God sending you out. You have a mission. You, you are very important. You're an important person. God needs you. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, uh, that campaign that ran, I want to say, in the 70s, uh, picture of Uncle Sam. It's kind of an old description of uh, the U.S. government. So there may be some people alive who are not familiar with that term. Uncle Sam, there's a picture of Uncle Sam, and he's pointing his finger at you from this sign. And the slogan is, Uncle Sam needs you. It was actually a, a very effective campaign, uh, I think. It, it spoke to that sense of mission. And it also speaks to a sense of narcissism. The narcissistic part of it is that you are so important. And, and you're not just important to your family. You're not just important to your community. You're not just important to your government or your school, or your business, you're important to God. The creator of the universe needs you. He has put you on a mission. He has called you out of whatever muck of a life you were living for a purpose. You have a purpose. You have a function. You are very, very important. Right at the end of that segment of his speech, he tells us, uh, gives us a clue of what that miss mission is. God sends us into a decaying world. This is another one of these poisonous ideas that you get from preachers and that Christians get a huge dose of every week in one form or another. The world is decaying. The world is bad. People are bad. It's full of sin and decay and despair. Everything is bad, and its only hope is for God working through you to pull it out of that condition. Remember I said uh, a heavy dose of narcissism. You are the saviors of the world. Because the world is in decay, God put you into this world of decay so that you can be a part of pulling it out of decay. What an important mission. You must be so important. So he says, what is of, what is of itself insipid can become delightful if seasoned with joy and devotion. How can I be the salt in the life of those around me, he asks. How can I season their distress and thus open their appetite for the great adventure of grace? Here's a thought. You don't. You don't. That's not your job. That's, that is not something that you should be doing. You should not be looking around at individuals who are minding their own business at Panera, thinking to yourself, how can I be the salt in, in that person's life? You, you don't. You, you, you just make yourself a, a nuisance. That person does not need you to be a salt in their life. You, you are actually assaulting their life. You are not being salt in their life. And if you're going around thinking to yourself, asking yourself, how can I be a salt for, uh, how can I be salt for that person's life? You're, you're humaning wrong. <laughs> that's, that's not in fact, a good, healthy mindset to have. You're not that important. Stop it. Just eat your sandwich and let other people eat theirs. He goes on to write, the Greek word here for becoming insipid means literally to become foolish, sharing a root with the word sophomore, which literally means wise fool. No offense to those of you who are sophomores. Similarly, the Latin for tasteless is insipidus, meaning that no longer knows. A thing is wisest when it is most fully itself, when it tastes most like itself, in keeping with its nature. 
It is foolish when it forgets to be what it is, when it no longer has its proper flavor, as when salt loses its strength, or when oil becomes rancid, or when wine turns to vinegar. Now, as it happens, I think this is the best part of his sermon. I actually like all of that. That's, that's great. But it's a thing, it's a part of his sermon that he himself is not hearing. And it's one that I would ask Christians to reconsider, to listen to again. And that is, you are at your best when you are being what you are. Not being something that you're not. And so you need to learn a lesson here. You do not become a better person by being like Jesus or being like Paul or being like your pastor. Guess what? You're not like any of those people. You are yourself, your grand, beautiful, glorious self. And your highest calling as yourself ought to be the best version of yourself. Be the best version of who you are. Embrace who you are. Embrace your full, messy, ugly, stinking, beautiful, glorious humanity. Embrace that because you are human. You are only and gloriously human. Embrace that and be the best version of who you are, as opposed to a failed version of someone you think is better than you. Salt is one of those primary realities that can contribute to enhancing the quality of other things, but that is itself hopeless once it goes bad. As in the case of water and fire, what can substitute for salt? It can no longer be destined for man's mouth, but only for trampling by his feet. In saying that his disciples are the salt of the earth, get a load of this, Jesus is describing the critical character of the Christian vocation. Either the Christian heightens the quality of human life and makes it more palatable, more delightfully nourishing, or he has no reason for being. Let's hear that again. Either the Christian heightens the quality of human life and makes it more palatable, more delightfully nourishing, or he has no reason for being. I am absolutely in favor of heightening the quality of human life. But oh my goodness, what a huge and lofty goal that is. How narcissistic do you have to be to think that you are so much God's gift to the universe that you can go around heightening the quality of human life. Also, when you say that, you're heightening the quality of human life from what to what? can, Can we put some specifics around that idea so that we can wrap our minds around it? The next observation is, where did you get that mission? Who, shall I say, who died and gave you that mission? Please don't say Jesus. <laughs> That's a, at no point did Jesus give you. I mean, why would, first of all, why would Jesus saying that that's what you should do mean that that's what you should do? I could say that you should do something else. Um So why do you feel that you have some cosmic mission to go around making life, making human life better? I don't, I don't understand that. Um, There, there might be, here's where I can get on board with this idea. I think it's a, a great idea if you can use your powers of charm and persuasion and empathy to help someone who's having a bad day to have a better day. That's great. You've, you've added more joy into the world and remitted a little bit of misery, but that's not a religious mission. 
that's just humanity being good humanity. This is this is not something if you think that this is what Jesus called you to do and and the only way you can get more joy into the world is by by obeying the calling of Jesus and in, in responding to the mission that he gave you. You are delusional. People do this sort of thing all the time. And they don't and they don't have to wear it on a t-shirt. No one ever knows. And we're talking about just good secular people being good people. So Christians, you don't own being good people and helping other people who are miserable be less miserable. So I'm I'm in favor. I'm all in favor of doing that. But then when you when you kind of take it on as your grand mission that the universe has given you, and you're not just going to try to make someone's life a little better who is currently miserable, but you are seeking the 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 bigger exercise of improving and enhancing human life in general, then at at that point, I don't know what you're talking about anymore. And I don't think you do either. So if there's someone out there who has that mission in mind, who thinks that that's their mission or who has had that mission in the past, but has, but it's not twice about it since then, please tell me what does it mean to make the quality of human life better in general? What, what is it you thought you were supposed to be doing and did you accomplish it? Salt is not for itself, cannot be its own end. It serves a humble yet somehow indispensable purpose. Nothing can substitute for it. Insipid Christians, those who have lost their proper flavor, have forgotten their function as a condiment of society. You don't have a function as a condiment of society. Also, sounds a little bit weird. (laughs) Um, You are not a condiment of society. Society doesn't need you to be a condiment. Society is not tasteless and broken. That is is religious uh, nonsense being poured into your head. Stop it. You are not the one who's adding flavor to and richness to society. Just stop it. They have forgotten the salt placed on their tongues at their baptism. No doubt they let this happen by blending into the common environment out of exhaustion, perhaps, or maybe out of fear to introduce a jarring note, a sharp, pungent flavor into the common endeavor. I I find this to be such a rich commentary because of the things that Mary Caucus pulls out and and this either or of what it means to be a Christian, I find to be um, provocative, uh, a bit jarring myself, but rich for reflection. Again, I think right now as we look at this particular passage, maybe a question for us to ask ourselves is just, how do I, do I know who I am? Do I know what the Lord's mission to all of us in baptism is? It is not to come away and be apart from the world. It is rather to, to be rejuvenated by the Spirit, to live in the midst of the world, and somehow, by our very presence in the midst, letting the Lord move through us, transform the world. If all the believers retreat from the culture, then what happens? This is where I want to call out as the most dangerous thing that he says. And it's a thing that Christians uh, say routinely. Uh, you hear it a lot. They say it without thinking about it now because they hear it every week in, in sermons just like this. If Christians retreat from the culture, just think of the chaos that will ensue. We're the only ones standing in the breach. And And if we falter, the secularists win and society falls down into ruins. We have to have our special rights because we're the only ones holding it together. We have to have our special exemptions because we're the only ones holding it together. We we should be exempt from vaccinations and wearing masks 
for, for our religious reasons, because we're the only ones holding society together. We should be able to pray in schools and indoctrinate children in schools because we're the only ones holding the education system together. This is the mindset that they have, and it's sermons like this that give it to them and compound it week after week after week. Society is a crumbling mess, and we are all on the verge of ruin, if not for the Christians on a mission. Really? Now, clearly, right now, in the culture in which you and I are living, this is going to cause for hardship and conflict. It always has. And right now, it's in a particularly intense way on all sorts of issues, right? And yet, the command from the Lord is still the same. I'm supposed to be salt and almost like a shaker, and he just wants to pour me wherever it is. So maybe a question, again, might be to think, so what are those, what are those foods, if you will, in my day-to-day, those people who are going to be near me, those situations I'm going to be in, and where does the Lord want to pick me up in his hand and just dispense a little salt so that he can use me and he can use you to bring the aroma of Christ and to make what is otherwise tasteless more flavorful? At risk of repeating myself, uh, life is not tasteless and you're you're not making it more flavorful. Uh, where does God want to pick me up and sprinkle a little bit of me, a little bit of salt that I represent onto the world? How narcissist are you? You you get dressed every morning thinking, well, you know, God is going to send me over there to that person and be the salt in their life. If God was really doing that, you wouldn't have to think about where you need to be. You see, the only reason Christians talk like that is because they know that God isn't doing crap. It's them that are doing it. So it's it's just a little bit of cognitive dissonance. If if you're open to God using you, God will pick you up and put you where uh, he wants to, and you probably won't realize that uh, it happened until after the fact. You don't have to spend one moment thinking about where God will use you or how God will use you today or how you can be open to God's. Either God's going to use you or he's not. And if you are sitting there thinking about it and planning it out and strategizing for it, it's not God using you at all. It's you with your narcissistic self trying to think how you can somehow be the salt in the life of someone who does not want or need you. Let's look just quickly at Matthew 5, 14, this next line, which here at Good Counsel we're pretty familiar with, right? So you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we've, we've talked about this so many times, right, with the, the whole reality that the church, so I'm looking at the church right now as I'm looking out, so this is, the, I believe this is the third tallest point in Wayne County. So it's, it's significant for us that on the top of our church is this red light. So everybody who drives by here, when they pass by an M14, and they see that red light, they know that's a Catholic church because that right, red light triggers uh, or an indicator of the fact that the tabernacle's here, the Blessed Sacrament's here. So that's a great image for us. So you build a city up on top of a hill, but usually you build a city up on top of a hill for protection, for the sake of those who live in the city, so that they can be up high and they can look down, they have a good vantage point in case of people who are attacking it, which is what it would be like at the time of Jesus. You always built a city up high, it's easier to defend a city that's up high. That's why it's on a hill. But you don't light up a city on a hill to protect it. When you light it up, all you're doing is calling attention to it. You're calling attention to it in this case because people need to know that's a place of refuge. That's a safe harbor. For the people who are outside in the wilderness, outside the safety of the city walls, lost in the middle of the forest and the brambles and the thorns and the the, the strewn with rocks, roads, they can see that light 
and they can go, that's where we've got to head, that's where we're going. And Jesus is saying, that's what you and I are called to be. We're called to be that as a community, first and foremost, and as individuals. So it's a good question for us to ask ourselves, is Our Lady of Good Counsel, is your discipleship group? Are we a group of people who are known to be a place that's safe? Not safe in the sense of, hey, whatever you want, doesn't matter, everybody's welcome here, doesn't matter what you do, I mean, not that. Safe in the sense of, no matter what somebody's present or their past is, they're going to receive a welcome here from the Lord. Might they be called to change and to convert and repent? I certainly have been and am continually called to do so. But the Lord doesn't first say, hey, stop doing that. The Lord calls me to himself. He wins me by his love. And then he begins to warm my heart and then show me the things that need to change. Then he goes on to talk about men don't light a lamp and put it underneath a bushel or a basket, but on a stand so that it gives light to all in the house. So the Greek word that Jesus uses here is is the word not for, you know, like a, a giant candle stand. It's for one of those little hand lamps. I have one of these in my office. So it's like a little brass lamp, small little candle on top, and it's got that hook, you know, for your finger that uh, Scrooge walked around the house with. So the imagery here is you and I, we're the lamp. Jesus is the hand. And he picks up the lamp. The house is the world. So in a real way, it's your world, like that area where you live, that area where I live. And each day, Jesus wants to pick me up and bring me into different rooms in the house so that the room, which is dark, will become light. So when he talks about, you know, nobody lights this thing and then puts it underneath a basket, you know, sometimes it's worth asking the obvious questions. Well, why don't you do that? Why don't you light a lamp and then put it under a basket? Why don't you flip on the the lights in your room and then cover them with duct tape? Well, you don't do that because that would be stupid, right? It would make no sense. And in a similar way, Jesus says, I have not placed my spirit in you so that you would hide it. I've placed my spirit in you so that you would let me pick you up and bring you into the different places in the world right now. Jesus placed his spirit in you. Once again, this is the narcissism of of Christian thinking. Jesus did this magical thing in you and now you have a responsibility this this whole longish section about being a light uh to the world or the light in a darkened part of the world yeah it carries it on but i want you to think very specifically about uh the hubbub a few years ago uh when the the big debate was about whether uh federal workers government workers uh, school teachers, uh, things like that, whether they could wear crosses on, on their job as part of their uniform, whether it was, uh, legal for an employer to have a dress code that forbade things like religious symbols. You remember that? Of course, of course you do because you're not six. Um, well, so this is what it, this is what it's all about. <laughs> okay. This is, this is uh, mission number four. You remember I uh, talked about the four different types of uh, missions that Christians have. Well, this is the mission of just being a light to the world of, of public piety of being a sandwich board for Jesus. That's, that's what the cross wearing is all about. If people just wanted to personally wear a cross, as a personal symbol of their private piety, they could tuck it under their shirt. <laughs> they, they're, no one's stopping them from doing that. The whole point of wearing a cross for cross-wearing Christians is to show you that they are wearing a cross. That is the point. It is to be an advertisement, a billboard, a loudspeaker, that says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they want to say that at work while they're teaching at school, in courts, while they're on the bench, uh, at the job. That's the entire point of the cross. That's what it's all about. It's about this, this public piety. 
because how are, how are people going to know about the light of Jesus if I don't shine it with this here public display of my piety? <laughs> how are they going to know I'm a Christian? How are they going to hear me shout about Jesus if I don't get to uh, put that bumper sticker on my car? How are they going to know? You can't kick me off of an airplane for wearing a shirt that says, I love Jesus. Um, also, you can't kick him off the airplane for saying, I love Satan. But uh, <laughs> another story, I guess. But the, the whole point of this for the Christian, in the hands of the Christian, is public piety. Uh, we've got a little bit more to say about this, though. Let's... Let's um, go ahead and get the conclusion. Uh, we're not quite at the conclusion, but we're, we're close to the end. So again, maybe a simple question for us to reflect on right now is, am I intentional in, first of all, being docile in the Lord's hands, letting him pick me up, letting him have his way? There is never going to be a time when listening to a Catholic preach say a thing like that isn't creeping. Uh, and, and I still, I think I'm not accusing this priest of anything untoward, but I think it is a, a type of grooming that all Christians participate in, which is to say, you should be humble and docile in the hands of God so that he can pick you up and use you however he wants to, and you can't fight it. Because you see, the unspoken follow-on to that is, I am a man of God. I'm, I'm his vessel here. I am an overseer of the flock, and you're a part of my flock. And so your being compliant in my hands is the same as you being compliant in God's hands. But it's, it's grooming the the battered wife or the abused child to continue to be docile. Remember last week, Bishop Glenn told us, whatever is happening to you, it was necessary. But then am I always kind of on the lookout for, Lord, where do you want to bring me today? So every day is a day in which you and I are being called to be missionaries. Every day we're being sent, or maybe in this case, we're being brought by the Lord, carried by the Lord into different environments, um, family settings, uh, work settings. Folks, please stop going to your family settings and your work settings trying to be some kind of missionary for God. This is, this is the problem. This is, this is the legislation that people want. I want to display the Ten Commandments because I'm a missionary for God in this work setting. Um, this is this is what happens when you have uh, Christian families and uh, secular family members. The Christians believe that they have a right, in in fact, a responsibility to continue to browbeat their faith onto you and your kids because you're being a mission for God, uh, a missionary for God in this setting. Please stop doing that. You are not helping. You are alienating yourself, and you are delusional for thinking that what you are doing is coming from some kind of higher power than your own narcissistic brain. Um, even something like Father Prentice said the other day at, uh, at a Mass where he, he was just talking about, so you're out to dinner, and you're, you know, you're praying before dinner, as we always want to do. Many of us, I think, we kind of like look for the waitress or the waiter, and we're like, okay, they're not coming, let's pray now. But instead, maybe you wait for them to come. Like, be intentional about waiting for them to come and then say, hey, we're about to pray. Is there something right now we can pray for for you? Well, all of a sudden, we've let the Lord bring the light that is within us, His Spirit, into this situation and potentially illuminate the life of somebody who, who knows what's on their mind, who knows what they're going through. The, the response of that person could be copious tears. <laughs> like, how did you know? I got a, a mom who's really sick right now who's, you know, in hospice. Yeah, it would be great. Would you pray for her? Thank you. Or whatever the situation might be. Oh, my effing Jesus God. 
this is um this is a man who doesn't seem to know his bible very well or his jesus very well we're gonna we're gonna come back to this uh we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and let him wrap up with a final piece here but we're gonna we're gonna come back to this um yeah just just wait for the wait staff to come before you start praying um yeah let's let's see how he finishes up so let's be deliberate and intentional every day this week about being mindful that the lord either wants to use he wants to pour us out into the environments that we are or he wants to pick us up and to carry us either salt or a lamp so that the gospel can be heard so that what is potentially decaying might be preserved and so that what's living in darkness might be illuminated. Let's pray for each other that God will use us powerfully this week to change just one person's life by sharing the gospel. God bless. Okay, we're uh, we're about done here. Uh, I just wanted to go back to the previous section where he is talking about performative Christianity. Um, he is. He gives the example of going into a, a restaurant, and it, rather than waiting to see if the waiter is is you know distant and not going to be there for a few minutes, you you shouldn't do that. Rather, you should wait and see when the waiter is coming back or waitress, so that you can begin your prayer at that time so that you can perform your prayer and and include them and in that way be assault uh be assault i don't know why i keep saying that to be salt for uh that that person this is this is truly disgusting this is truly disgusting frankly i think all public prayer is disgusting. It, it really is. It's performative Christianity. That's what it is. So when you're at the restaurant, even if you don't follow this man's advice, but you just pray when you know there's a downtime in service, you are still practicing performative Christianity because you're performing for the other people in the restaurant. And you don't pray looking at each other and, you know, gesturing with your hands as you do in conversation. You, you take on a prayer posture so that people can not just hear you pray at the other tables, they can see you pray. So if they're too far away to hear you being pious, they can look over and see that you're pious. Right. So, but you're saying, but I, but I have to pray. I'm about to eat here. You are in your car on the way to the restaurant. You can pray. Then you're in your car. When you get to the restaurant, you can turn the car off. You can sit in your tinted glass windows and, and pray right there before you go into the restaurant. The only, the only, only reason you pray at a restaurant at all is for the performance of the prayer. It's performative, just like the cross. It's performative and it's disgusting, but it's also particularly unchristian. So you, you Christians who think that you are being a light for Jesus in this situation, let me, let me introduce you very briefly to Matthew chapter six, verse five and six. You may have missed this one. And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. Ooh, there's a strong accusation. You're not to be like the hypocrites. What is it about the hypocrites? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. Yeah, this is even public prayer at church. In the synagogues, and on the street corners, you know, out where people can see you in the restaurants and on, on their way, I'm sorry, on the street corners so that they will be seen by people. Remember, that's the only reason anyone ever prays at a restaurant is to be seen praying. 
because they have so many other options where they can thank God for their food and not be seen doing it. So you are, in fact, just like the hypocrites when you do this. The passage goes on, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room. Some, some say go into your closet. Go in your closet. Close your door. It's not enough for you to go in the closet. <laughs> Someone might walk by and see you. Close the door. Make Take precautions that no one sees you doing this. Go out of your way to make sure no one sees you doing this, that no one can connect what you're doing to praying. It says, close your door and pray to your father who is in secret. Uh, some translations, I believe, would say uh, your father who is invisible. God is invisible. And you're talking to him should also be invisible. So it says, pray to your father who is invisible and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you want to have any credit for your prayer, you should go in your closet and shut the door. You should take precautions to do it in such a way where no one sees it because performative prayer is apparently also disgusting to Jesus as well. Remember that the next time you go to the restaurant and you perform your prayer, both audibly and visibly, so that people can see you pray. You're being just like the hypocrites. Now, what about those hypocrites, those Pharisees, the, the religiously pious? What about those people? What can we say? Well, I think that if I were to stand in their defense, I would, I would just use your defense. They're not praying to be seen. What are you talking about? I mean, they are seen, but that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it to be a light for God to a world in darkness. That's why they're doing it. They're doing it because when someone sees them pray, they will maybe be reminded of God, maybe be reminded to, to try to be a better person, maybe praise God in the process. They can, they can come up with all kinds of good outcomes for them praying in public. And yet Jesus didn't want any of those outcomes. He said, go in your closet and make sure that nobody sees you doing this. And so this particular pastor, preacher, brother, father, saint, I don't know his name, sorry. This particular person says, no, 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 not only should you do it publicly, but perform it and include the wait staff within, bring in other people with you who, who aren't a part of your business at all, because you might accomplish something good in that prayer. So in other words, never mind what Jesus said. You know, if you have an opportunity where you think you could accomplish something good, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Just forget it. Per be performative in your prayer. Be performative in your clothing. Be performative when your car's bumper sticker. This is the kind of mission that he is promoting, this type of performative Christianity, where you're a sandwich board for Jesus. Okay, that's going to that's gonna do it for this week, and uh, we will bring you more next week. It's been a blast.